Good morning. How good it is to be with you again and to share not only in worshiping our God together, but to share in hearing his word. So if you haven't already, would you open your copy of God's word to Jonah chapter 2? It's where we're going to be this morning. The last time I was together with you, we looked at Jonah chapter 1. And so we'll resume making our way through this book, looking at chapter 2. And Though a portion of chapter 2 was just read for the sake of context, let's set ourselves in the framework of this narrative, reminding ourselves of why Jonah is praying the prayer that we just read by looking back at verse 1 of chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And as they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. 
For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars are closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Would you join with me in prayer as we ask our God for his help as we consider his word this morning? Our God and our Father, we come to you this morning in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our perfect mediator who gives us the full access to you and the full assurance that we are yours. It's on the basis of this wonderful union with you that we come asking as your dear children to help us, to feed us, to sustain us. And we ask for the ministry of your spirit that we may have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you've called us to, that we might know what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe in you. Father, we're praying and we're asking that you might do this so that our faith would be strengthened in you, to trust you in trial, to be those who are able to rejoice in suffering, to be those who are humble in seasons of abundance, And Lord, we ask specifically where faith does not yet exist, that you would miraculously and mercifully create it. Just as you spoke into darkness and created the light, Father, would you be pleased this morning to shine into darkened hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of you in the face of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, here we are in the book of Jonah, and if you're familiar with this narrative and with this book, you may have found that in reading it, it's quite easy to come to the end of chapter 4 and come away with more questions than answers. It's really not the feel-good story of the year that you read through, and everything is tied up and trimmed nicely with a perfectly trimmed bow, and you walk away and say, well, that was a wonderful story. It really doesn't strike us that way. It's quite common and quite understanding to read these four chapters and come away scratching your head, saying, what did I just read? What did I just hear? Or maybe, why is this in the scriptures? What am I to learn from this? Because as you read these four chapters, you perhaps find yourself asking, how is it that a prophet of God could actually flee from God's call? Or how could someone like Jonah 
who knows the gracious character of God, at the same time be angry when God extends grace to others. Or perhaps you're asking, how is it that a man could offer such a scripture-filled, heart-felt, orthodox prayer in one moment that we just read, and then behave in such a disjointed and distorted way a chapter or two later? How is it? Well, I think if we're brave enough to be honest with ourselves, this sort of thing right here is unfortunately very common in our own lives as well. This sort of head-scratching response to the, the disjointed sort of living between what we say and how we respond, between what we pray and what we practice, it shows up in our own story more often than we probably would like to admit. I think Calvin was quite helpful when he noted that a perfect faith is nowhere to be found. Therefore, we are all partly unbelievers. What he means in that is that there is always some aspect of God's word. There is always some aspect of God's character that when we are confronted by it, we refuse to believe that it is good and that it is true. We are all partly unbelievers in some way as we go throughout our days. And I think it's tempting to read the lives of the prophets and other biblical characters and assume that they were fully sanctified, that they were these faultless, holy beings. But I think the book of Jonah would clearly warn us otherwise. Jonah, like each of us, is a man in process. And so then, the prayer that is here in chapter 2, it must be read for what it is and for what it contains, but it also must be placed within the larger context of the other surrounding chapters and within the even larger narrative of redemptive history. So what we have before us this morning is essentially the prayer of a man brought to the end of himself. It is filled with the sort of language that you might expect to hear when a man actually runs from God, when he's thrown into the sea, when he's swallowed up into the deep. But within this account, I want you to see there is a message of tremendous hope. This is the sort of announcement that is contained here that can transform even the most dire of circumstances. And so what I want us to do this morning is to think along three lanes. Really, what we need to do is look at the substance of Jonah's prayer, just what is contained within it. But in doing that, we've got to recognize the surprise that is Jonah's prayer. And then last, we'll look at the great significance of Jonah's prayer. Let's look at the substance, recognize the surprise that's contained there, And then finally, we'll look at the significance of it. So let's begin by just walking our way through the substance of Jonah's prayer. Now, as you hear the languages, it was just read for us this morning. As you hear the very language of Jonah's prayer, I wonder, does any of it sound somewhat familiar to you? 
as you've come to know your Bible and become familiar with it, is there anything that Jonah has expressed, any allusion or phrase that he used that seemed kind of to be an, an echo of some other passage distantly, faintly, that I've heard this before? Well, if you did, you would be right, because much of Jonah's language in this prayer is essentially taken from the Psalms. Not one psalm particularly, but a collection of psalms. As you read through Jonah 2, you can find references to Psalm 3, Psalm 5, 16, Psalm 18, 31, 42, 50, 65, 68, 88, and 120. What came out of Jonah's mouth was the psalms that he was familiar with. The themes of life and death and despair and hope and judgment, all of these words flow out over Jonah's lips as they've begun to be sown into Jonah's heart. What came out in the midst of despair was the very word that God had sown into Jonah's life. His prayer was filled with the psalms. And it's for good reason, I believe, that the Psalms have been referred to as the anatomy of the soul because they're able to get in and to put language to those varied seasons of life that we all walk through as followers of Christ and give us the, the terminology and the descriptives and the, the metaphors for what we're feeling, the very anatomy of the soul. And this is what we hear come from Jonah's mouth. So the prayer begins essentially in verse 2 with a call. Verse 2 lays out the simple theme that could summarize the entire prayer, simply saying, I called and Yahweh answered. That's what he wants to say. The parallel lines of thought there in verse 2 testify to the same experience. I was in distress. I called out to the Lord and he answered. I was in the very belly of Sheol and he heard my voice. I called and God answered. What we have here then is a testimony of a man who's in great distress, but one who he says, I've ultimately been delivered. He called out, and God was not silent. He was at his lowest point in the most dire of circumstances, the very depths of even at the grave, and yet God listened to his prayer. Okay, Jonah, what sort of distress were you in? Well, that moves us into the crisis that's described in verses 3 through 6. He calls out, but then he describes the crisis in verses 3 through 6. Jonah makes it very clear this is a bad situation. Notice the images and the language that he uses. He says, I was cast into the deep. He speaks of the floods. He speaks of the waters closing in. The deep surrounded. His head is entangled in seaweed. He's sinking down to the gates of death. Fair enough, but let's ask the more important question. How did Jonah get here? How did Jonah get into this predicament? How did he end up in such a crisis? After all, this is not the prayer of a persecuted man who stood up for righteousness and somehow is now brought low through the scorn of other people. This distress was brought on by his disobedience. We should not forget that. 
this is really one of the most painful kinds of distress because Jonah got what he wanted. Do you remember what he said back in chapter 1, verse 3? Jonah rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. And here he is in the midst of his prayer in chapter 2, verse 4. He laments, I've been driven away from your sight. I got what I wanted. And it's miserable. That's the worst kind of crisis. And don't think all of this has just come upon Jonah by bad luck or chance. He sees all of this has come upon me by the hand of the Lord. Because he says in verse 3, you cast me into the deep. And then in verse 3, the second portion, he says, these aren't just waves. These are your waves. Your billows are crashing upon me. So here's the crisis. Sin has consequences. Rebellion is costly. And is this not the repeated refrain of Scripture from Genesis 3 onward? Sin equals death. Sin breaks fellowship. Sin brings about the curse of thorns and striving and this gnawing sense of futility that everything we put our hands to is ruined. It's tainted. It does not satisfy. It does not produce the Eden that we long for. Really, because the rejection of God and of his ways is a life of distress. To reject God is to be driven from God's sight and to feel these waves and these billows crash down upon us. It could just be described in one word as misery. And in fact, that's the exact word that the catechism uses when it begins to talk about the effects of sin. Question 22 said, what is the misery of the estate whereunto man fell? Answer, all mankind fell, or by their fall lost communication with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries in this life to death itself, and the pains of hell forever. That's the misery that sin creates. That's the misery that we are all born into, being sons of Adam, our first father. And the whole crisis of humanity is that God has spoken, but we have rejected his words. We are those who suppress the truth about God. We harden our hearts. We flee just like Jonah, attempting to escape the very presence of God. I don't want to hear about God. I don't want to hear his name sung or prayed to or mentioned or taught. I don't want to hear about his scripture. I'm keeping it at arm's length for as long as I can. That's the misery that sin creates. And what is the cost of such rebellion? What is the wages of sin? Well, we're cast into the deep. We're driven from God's sight. We're plunged down to the depths, even to the grave. The wages of sin is death. And whether we realize it or not, Jonah's plight is our own. We are Jonah. But Jonah does not end here. His prayer does not remain in crisis. His experience is set off by this one small three-letter word. Did you catch it? He says in verse 6, 
yet. Yet. It's a word of contrast. It's a clue to us, the reader, that all that has come before that he has mentioned, it's going to stand in direct opposition to everything that he's going to now say. All this is true, yet you brought my life up from the pit. Yahweh, my God. Do you see the progression here of Jonah's thought? Do you see what he knows? He knows that He was separated from God in his rebellion. He knows that the Lord has driven him away from his sight and brought him low. And yet, he also knew something about this same God that gave him reason to hope in the midst of the circumstances. Yes, Jonah had deserted God. He he knows that. But what Jonah says is, given the fact that I have not drowned, given the fact that I am not dead, God has not deserted me. I'm still alive. I'm in the belly of some great fish, and I'm not consumed. God may yet still be merciful. What a gracious reminder for us this morning. Perhaps are you, yourself, even this morning, attempting to run from God? Attempting to suppress or harden, attempting to distance yourself from what you know to be true about him or his word, even drowning in the consequences of your own sin. The fact that you're not dead, the fact that there is breath in your lungs and that you can hear the word of God read to you this morning proves that there is yet hope and that God is merciful. Jonah should remind us of that straight away. How could I make such a claim? How can I be so bold to say that? Well, because of Jonah's confidence. Because of what Jonah says now in verse 7. We've heard the call. We've heard the crisis. Look at his confidence in verse 7. He says he knows something. What do I know? What could give me such confidence? Why can I say, yet God will bring me up? How is it that someone could be in the belly of a great fish with seaweed wrapped around their face and say, I still have hope? How does that work? Where does that come from? Well, as you read these verses, what you find is the basis of Jonah's hope is essentially grounded upon two principles that he's holding in both hands. On one hand, he says, there's this despair of idolatry and its absolute foolishness. I'm confident of this. And on the other hand, he holds up and he says, there's great joy in salvation. I can say yet, because of the foolishness of idolatry, and the rejoicing in salvation. Consider what he says. First of all, verse 8, he mentions the despair of idolatry. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. I find it interesting that there is this constant warning and constant danger among God's people, this warning against idolatry. It runs throughout scripture. And as you come across it, you eventually discover that the danger is not simply the temptation to pay homage to some wooden statue, but really the danger and the warning is the posture of the heart. It's the object of our affections and what we set our affections upon. What's the first commandment? 
I am your God. Have no other gods before me. There's no third option between those commands. There's no third way to somehow navigate that. I am your God. Have no other gods before me. Romans 1.25 says that we will worship and serve either God or some other created thing. The Bible is teaching is that it is impossible to worship nothing. There are no agnostics. We are all worshipers. Simply put, idolatry is just replacing God. Idolatry is looking at someone or something to deliver what only God can provide. It's an unbearable burden to put on someone else because they will never provide what God alone can. And it's a horrible slave to be beholden to because it will never deliver what you're hoping it will promise to bring to you. And it is a temptation that we are flooded with on a daily basis. It's the mistaken belief that this right here, this, this is the thing. This is the experience, this is the person, this is the thing that I need that will finally absolve my fears. I don't have to live in fear anymore. This just happens. I can finally be comforted in my affliction if this circumstance just will change. It will finally provide what I lack and satisfy what I need. This, them, right here, rearrange this, that's it. That's idolatry. Believing that something other than God will deliver what only God can. And think of all the ways that you and I are tempted to tend and to keep, just like we would a garden, to tend and to keep our various idols. Think of the ways in your own life, even this past week, that you've been tempted and even gone through with trusting in created things to rescue you from your supposed nightmare scenario, the worst case situation as we seek comfort, as we seek security, as we seek approval, as we seek power. And what is Jonah's great confidence regarding this behavior? He says, I know this. Those who pay regard to such vain idols they actually forsake their hope of steadfast love, the covenant love of God that never fails, that is undeserving, that is put upon us, not for anything that we have done or ever shall do, but the steadfast faithfulness love of God. Those who pay regard to such vain idols forsake their hope of that, meaning When you and I tend and guard and keep our idols, we forsake the very thing that we need, the love of God. See, what the scriptures are teaching is that our concerns for safety, our longings for comfort, the need to be satisfied, those are legitimate concerns. They're the need of every created being by God's design so that we would find them all satisfied in our creator. He's wired us to be dependent upon him 
But in our folly, how quickly and how often we substitute what only God can provide for something that the scriptures call idolatry. The offense and the folly of idolatry is essentially believing that something other than God will deliver. And Jonah says, this I'm convinced of. And at the same time, he says there's something else in verse 9. His confidence is also in the joy of salvation. I think the narrative of the story is inescapably clear here. Jonah is saved in spite of himself. He is saved in spite of his sinful rebellion, not because of any sort of faithful obedience in his life. Salvation is of the Lord, is what he says, because only the Lord can overcome the evils of our hardened hearts, the stubbornness of our wills, and the twistedness of our misguided affections. Salvation is of the Lord. The entire experience testifies of this. God appointed a fish to rescue Jonah from the death of drowning. God directed the fish to deliver him to dry land. The entire experience from sea to shore is this testimony. Salvation's of the Lord. This man deserves to die. There's no reason in all the earth that this man should be alive. Salvation is of the Lord. And what is so good to remember is that this has been the testimony of every believer in all of history. Yeah, your circumstances and the, the small fine details, they may vary from life to life and circumstance to circumstance, but the testimony of every Christian, every follower of Christ at some point is this banner over all of that narrative that says salvation is of the Lord. I would encourage you to think about your own testimony. How did you come to faith in Christ? How did you come to put your hope in the promise of the gospel? Does it bear this out? Is that same plot line there? Eventually you had to come to this place in your story where you could say, salvation's of the Lord. Kids, do you know the testimony of your parents? For you that have moms and dads that have put their faith in Jesus, do you know the story of how they came to put their faith in him? If you don't, ask them. Or if you do, say, tell me again. Remind me. I want to hear your testimony of how salvation is of the Lord. Let me encourage you, even this afternoon, over lunch, if you gather with family or friends, speak of this story. How is it that you came to see, like Jonah, salvations of the Lord? We need to be reminded of this as followers of Christ. We need to hear this again and again to testify to this simple truth that salvation is of the Lord. So that's the substance of Jonah's prayer. But as we read through this, we can't stop there. Because there is a surprise that we must deal with in regards to Jonah's prayer. And by the surprise, I mean this. If you're familiar at all with the book of Jonah, you come to the end of this prayer, you're saying, amen, salvation's of the Lord. And then you say, wait a second. I know about chapter 3, too. I know about chapter 4. How does a man pray a prayer like this, so full of themes of mercy, and then go on to be enraged that this mercy is given to sinners? What do I do with this prayer? Meaning, how do we make sense of Jonah 2 in light of Jonah 
4, but if you don't know what I mean, look ahead to the end of chapter 3. Listen to Jonah's testimony, verse 10. When God saw what Nineveh did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. This is the surprising irony of Jonah's prayer. It is an example of precise orthodoxy, followed by a massive failure of orthopraxy. It calls to mind, really, Christ's own words in Mark chapter 7, when he spoke to the Pharisees and he said, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it's written, these people Honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jonah speaks as a man who's been driven from God's sight, cast down into the deep, brought up from the pit, and then Jonah announces with this great bravado that while some may tend to their idols, he will lift up his voice and fulfill the vow of his thanksgiving and praise to God. This is a man who relishes the grace of God for his own sin. And then at the same moment, he is enraged at the thought of sinners getting the same treatment. So I ask you, think about this. How is it that a worshiper of Yahweh could be this disjointed in their profession and their practice? How could you? How could I? For how often do our own lives reflect the same distortion? How often is grace offensive to our own self-righteousness? How often do I cling to the mercy of God for my own sin, but scowl at the immaturity of somebody else? They just don't know. So disjointed. So disconnected. And do we not, in those moments, in our smugness, expose our own disjointed assumptions? Jesus' parable in Luke 18 hits a little too close to home more often than we probably would like to admit. I'll remind you of what Jesus said. It's in Verse 9 of Luke 18, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. 
I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you're familiar with that parable, you know Jesus' application point there. Surely that man went home justified. Who is the consistent? Who is the believer? What does the believer sound like? Not one who prays with themselves and boasts in his own righteousness, but one who has head bowed and says, God, be merciful, because I know one thing about me. I'm a sinner. I need mercy. The surprising irony of Jonah's prayer is that it is filled from tip to tail with very precise, theologically true statements that every single one of us who follow Christ would say amen to, not our heads and affirm, but it's graphically disjointed from his living. Does this not serve as a glaring warning for us that it is possible to have precise theological statements outlined and parsed in our own minds, to have libraries filled with books and podcasts that we've listened to for hours espousing the orthodox truths of Scripture, but have disjointed lives. It's a warning to Christ's followers that it's possible and that it's actually quite common. That is the surprise, and as staggering as this irony is, we would be negligent if we did not look further into the most important aspect of Jonah's prayer. This, the substance of his prayer is important. The surprising irony there must be addressed. But the significance of Jonah's prayer is the most important thing that we could walk away from this morning and see. Because when we read Jonah chapter 2, we're not meant to remain fixated here on all his aquatic adventures. We're meant to be propelled forward into the New Testament. Because Christ himself takes up Jonah and he holds him forth. And he says, I want you to think about Jonah for a second. Turn over to your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. To just look briefly at what Christ says regarding this sign of Jonah. Because we would be greatly remiss if we did not launch from here to hear what Christ says about the all-important message of Jonah being in the belly of this fish. Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Verse 39, but he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What Jesus is saying, we'll pause there, is the real significance of Jonah's prayer is it shows us the greatness of Christ. It shows us the greatness of the Messiah. Okay, but let's ask the important question, greater in what sense? Why is Jesus the greater Jonah? Why is the sign of Jonah point us to Jesus? For one, Christ's death is a greater death than Jonah's. 
The language of Jonah, it reflects the true and greater experience of our Lord. Think about what Jonah prayed there in chapter 2. Christ knows what it was like to be driven away from the presence, from the sight of his Father, as Jonah says in verse 4. Christ was actually, unlike Jonah, forsaken by his Father. The waters of death that Jonah mentions, they took Christ's life. Because unlike Jonah, God did not spare his son. He gave him up to death. Christ's death is a greater death than all of Jonah's experience in chapter 2. Because why did Christ descend unto death? Unlike Jonah, it was not for anything that he did. Jonah was in the deep, sinking down to the bars of the gates to, to Sheol itself because of disobedience. Jesus, on the other hand, was the faithful prophet, the holy priest, the righteous king who descended into the grave for the sake of his own people. His death was a physical death, but it was much more than that. Christ's death was a judgment. The son was forsaken. The son was cursed and scorned. He bore the judgment of the guilty people in his own death. This is why Peter would write, instructing us, saying, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The father sent his son into the deep, forsook him, gave him over to death, that he might bring us up from the same gates of death that we deserve. Christ's death was a greater death. But Christ's resurrection is also a greater resurrection, if you think about this as well. Jonah was as good as dead, but he wasn't really dead. If you would have watched him plunge down into those waters, if you were one of the mariners on the ship, seeing his face sink further and further away, watching the waves crash over, you would have thought, he's dead. But if you would have been on the shores of Nineveh and then seen suddenly Jonah roll out onto the sand, and you would have known what it has happened, you would have said, we thought you were dead. We thought for sure you were gone. It looked like he was dead, but he wasn't. It looked like a resurrection, but it wasn't. But Christ, descending into death, three days, he did not just almost die. He died. And therefore, his resurrection is a much greater resurrection than what we consider. It is a matter of first importance. This is why Paul would instruct the Corinthians in chapter 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Why does that matter, Paul? Well, he goes on to tell us in verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so as in Christ all shall be made alive. This is the most transformational statement in all of the New Testament. 
that we were born in Adam. We were born as those who have a death sentence over our head in the misery of sin, and yet Christ has come, the first fruits of all those who will be resurrected. What kind of harvest will this resurrection be? Look to Christ. He's the first fruits. That's what is come. That's what awaits us as believers. It's a resurrection much greater than Jonah's. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, the Son of Man, three days, three nights in the heart of the earth, something greater than Jonah has come. Because in the resurrection of Christ, what we have is the assurance of our forgiveness. We have the assurance of our removal of our guilt, our pardon. What we have is even hope in the midst of death. Jonah could could rightly say salvation is of the Lord because Jesus accomplished all that sinners cry out for. So stepping back for a moment, maybe the irony and the surprise of Jonah's life isn't that foreign to us at all. Because we actually are the rebels who squirm and shift in our seats when the word of God comes to us and confronts us. We are the ones who have run from his voice, suppressing his truth. But what Jonah and all of scripture testifies is that God is greater than unbelief and that his grace abounds even in the immensity of our sin. So when we read this book and we hear this prayer, we are meant to look at our own life, to see the same thoughts, the same sins, the same foolishness that is here. And then seeing in all of that, we are then meant to look to Christ, to cling to him, and to rest in his finished work. We are to say, in all honesty, I am the rebel that deserves to be forsaken in death, yet Christ descended into death that I might live. Like Jonah, you may be here this morning and you have, may have pulled the world down on your own head because of your own sin and your foolishness. You may be drowning this morning in the consequences of your own rebellion and feeling the weight of your own sin. That is true. The book of Jonah, it, it calls out to you. It pleads with you, testifying that there is hope even in the midst of such calamity and darkness, because something greater than Jonah has come. Christ descended into death and was raised up from the grave in order to fully pay the judgment that that sin, your sin, deserves and secure the favor of God upon sinners. The innocent died so that the guilty might live. Or maybe... You're here this morning and you may feel as if you've been driven away from the presence of God, cut off from this sense of fellowship with him and his people. The book of Jonah calls out to you as well, testifying that there is hope even in the midst of such painful circumstances because Christ was forsaken so that his people might not ever be. Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because something greater than Jonah has come. That is why. 
And that's why we can sing with loud voices and full hearts of faith, man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. And when we get that, when that really sinks into our souls, we are then able to say, hallelujah, what a Savior. We say with Jonah, salvation is of the Lord. Let's look to him. Father, we thank you so much for the goodness of your promise of grace that's given to us in Christ. We confess that how often we are those who know true things about you, can even articulate them in ways that are right, well-ordered, and helpful. But Lord, at the same time, how often we find a disconnect in our living and our thinking, our responses and words. And so, Lord, we come to you as those who say we are cut from the same cloth, bearing the same DNA as our brother Jonah. We come to you recognizing the same tendencies and the same idolatries, the same fears and the same self-righteousness that courses through our veins and how much we need your son, how much we need the forgiveness that you bring, the cleansing that you offer, the transformation of mind and affections that you bring about by the work of your spirit. We pray that you would continue to strengthen us, conform us to the image of your son, continue to assure us of the forgiveness of sin that is found in Christ, Bring us to that place that we might see in full faith and confidence that salvation is purely of you and there is such great comfort in resting and rejoicing in that. Do that that we, your people, might testify not only of how good you are, but how merciful you are, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.